What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the Two Man Power Trip. Chad and John, the Two Man Power Trip. That's uh, that's an awesome uh, name for yourselves. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, John. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Scotty Riggs, and you're listening to the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie, Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. <laughs> hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. Well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. What's going on, guys? This is a 7-foot, 330-pound DNA of TNA. That's right. My DNA is outer space. And you're listening to the two-man power trip of professional wrestling. You know, I, I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know 10 times more than I do. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. This is the two-man power trip of wrestling brought to you today and powered by our very own ProWrestlingTees.com t-shirt store. Head on over to ProWrestlingTees.com and support the two-man power trip of wrestling podcast by heading over and buying one of our shirts, our very own two-man power trip of wrestling podcast t-shirts at ProWrestlingTees.com. And with that being said, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, Primetime John Paz. And John, today on the show, we have an absolutely explosive guest. He's a heat seeker. He's the stuff. He's Buff Daddy. He is Marcus Alexander Buff Bagwell joining the program. And when it comes to Buff Bagwell, there's so many things that you can pinpoint as this guy being either controversial or as the WWE called him a heat seeker, somebody who always kind of is wrapped around some of the negative things that have to do with professional wrestling. Of course, thinking about WCW, thinking about the NWO, thinking about all the politics and thinking about a character like Buff, who was so controversial during the late nineties that I think his reputation really followed him kind of in an undue way as he went further into his career but, John, why don't we talk about first the fact that Buff Bagwell is linked to so many controversial moments in and outside of the business. But if you think about it, Buff may be our most entertaining guest that we've ever had. And I got to tell you something, as funny as it is and as much as you're going to hear, we weren't even close to being finished and in getting into the story of Buff Bagwell. 
You know what, uh, Chad, for a guy that is known as the heat seeker, and we call him that a few times and we kind of joke around that he's the heat seeker and stuff like that, and he's linked to so many contro- uh, controversial moments, whether it be inside or outside of the wrestling business, and you put all that and you're going to say, oh, he's not going to be that good of a guest and he's going to be, uh, you know, he's going to be mean or he's going to be rude or whatever. He's a heat seeker. He's buff. Not the case whatsoever. He was one of our most entertaining guests by far. Could be our most entertaining guest of all time. He was so good. He was so raw. He was so emotional. He was so captivating that, quite frankly, we all lost track of time, and we go into the epic category. If anybody's not familiar with the show, uh, that is more of our longer interviews. And this one goes nearly two hours with the buff stir. So it's just awesome, and he was so captivating. I just can't say that enough. He was so great. I uh, just loved his stories, and it's just so funny because going into it, you're like, oh, man, I don't know how great of an interview he's going to be since uh, he's got this reputation. But as we talk about in the interview, sometimes when you're playing a certain character or sometimes when some people make up lies about you or make up stories about you, that that kind of gets put into your career or that maybe you were acting cocky so people kind of get that impression of you. I, it's crazy to think, but he was unbelievable, and I can't wait to uh, get Balfon back again for part two because this was so damn good, and, and I guarantee you, any fans out there of our show, you will absolutely love this episode. And by the time we were done with this, i got to be honest, Chad, we weren't even close to finished. Yeah, crazy enough, not even nearly close to being finished. And with Buff Bagwell, obviously, you think about WCW, you think about how he's identifiable with WCW in the late 1990s, and we didn't even get a chance to get into his time in Global as the Handsome Stranger, or some of his earlier tag team partners, or anything that he's basically done post-WWF in 2001. I mean, he's been doing some amazing things with DDP Yoga and transforming back into the Buff Bagwell that we all know and love not that he ever did lose what he looked like he has always looked awesome but if you go on his twitter and you see the shape that he's in now he is in buff bagwell shape to say the least but speaking of being identifiable with wcw it's him and sting that really are the two faces of wcw that really get linked to it throughout time but the time spent in the world wrestling federation that brief little speck in 2001 is really a primary focus of this show And John, when we think about that and we think about the heat with Jim Ross, it's absolutely nuts. Absolutely nuts to think about what has transpired between the two of them and that we go on for nearly 30 minutes talking about the fact that the invasion was a flop, the fact that Jim Ross has this undue, unjust heat with Buff Bagwell. And I kind of posed it to Buff in a way as why? Why does Jim Ross have this heat with you? And what would you say to Jim Ross if given the chance? And that would be an awesome two-man power trip down the road, a Buff Bagwell, Jim Ross one-on-one. But, John, let's talk about that time in the WWF. And obviously, Buff being the man that he is, it carried throughout his whole entire tenure that he came post-WCW. And it's always the man with the uh, the heat-seeking ability of Buff Bagwell. Being a true blue WCW loyalist like I am, a longtime WCW fan, I just love getting these guys on from WCW and talking about those Nitro days and those old school days and just reminiscing because I just was such a big fan and I absolutely love that era of wrestling. It was crazy and a few guys obviously really, really stick out because of their loyalty to WCW and two guys really stick out are Sting and then of course our guest today Buff Bagwell and you think about how loyal he was never left until obviously they were bought by the WWE and we have ooh, 
many, many stories about that. And we go into that quite in-depthly as, uh, you know, we talk about the sale of WCW to the WWE and Vince McMahon purchasing it. And then, of course, the controversial things that happen afterwards involving Buff. Obviously, we get into the Booker T match on Monday Night Raw. We talk about some of the house show matches, the Hurricane Helms injury. And we go very much in depth on the invasion, why it failed, why it was just absolutely terrible, why it was destined to fail from the beginning because Vince McMahon never wanted WCW to succeed and would never put them over on his, on his uh, programming. So we go over that in, in depth. But, and then, of course, the most important thing that we talk about, and it's so good when we get into it, and that was the heat with uh, Jim Ross himself. We spent such a long time talking about that, and it was such a great story that he gives us. And we go to the whole Judy Bagwell thing. Did his mom call out sick for him? Uh, was Jim Ross making it up? And we'll go, we go very much into that whole story and the whole heat between himself and Jim Ross. So you really, really, really kind of want to hear that. Stay tuned and strap in for what is about to be one of the most intense rides that you can experience by joining us every week on the two-man power trip of wrestling as we get ready now to settle in for a little talk about the nwo and when i talk about intensity and you talk about the fire and the fire storm that the nwo caused in 1996 1997 1998 1999 who was there but buff bagwell to transition in from a white meat baby face to the ranks of the new world order and everything that transpired afterwards from the turn heard around the world, which was one of the best turns of the NWO era, through Buff's devastating neck injury and subsequent injuries that he suffered in 1998-1999 that just really hurt his momentum but didn't keep Buff Bagwell down in any way, shape, or form. And John, I know you and I were such huge marks for the NWO that it's so awesome to get the chance to talk to, can you believe this, our first real nwo member to join the program because if you want to look at secondary members you know you can go visit the dusty Rhodes uh episode and we can hear his great story about turning on larry zabisco but that's a cheap plug for that episode but being a wcw staple and him stepping up his game when he went to the nwo talk about the pairings talk about how he fit in like a glove with the nwo and how we came to know that buff truly was the stuff one of my favorite topics ever in the history of the wrestling business because I remember it so well and it was right in my wheelhouse and it was right in and when I was probably the biggest fan of the business and that's when the NWO came and saved the wrestling business. Yes, WCW, the NWO, they saved the wrestling business. Hollywood Hulk Hogan turned heel and the wrestling business was never the same again. Obviously, Hall and Nash played a huge role in that and then the booking of WCW from there on was just unbelievable and all put this up against anything WWF's ever done, even the Attitude Ever, even Austin versus McMahon, whatever you want to throw out there. The NWO and subsequent right after that was the best booked league I've ever seen, I've ever you know, witnessed, ever been part of, whatever you want to say. It was just awesome. And to talk about the role of the NWO and even go further and talk about Buff Bagwell's role in the NWO, it was awesome. I mean, he was a WCW staple, and that turn was done beautifully. It was done perfectly. Obviously, he was with the American Males. He was with Scotty Riggs, and boom, he turns on him and becomes Buff Bagwell. And if, if there ever was anybody that just fit the NWO like a glove, I mean, obviously you got Hall and Nash and Six. They just 
they just bleed NWO. That's just them, the attitude and everything else. But you throw Buff in there, and what a perfect pick. You couldn't get more perfect than Buff in the NWO, and I loved it because not only did he step up his game big time, his character was stepped up big time. His cockiness, the way he would look in the camera, his posing, his dancing, everything about him was just perfect, and it just, you know, he was the guy you love to hate, and he was absolutely perfect for the NWO. And you think about all the great pairings he had with the NWO. I loved when he was with Scotty Steiner. That pairing was absolutely great. Then you throw in Slick Johnson as like the NWO referee. That was really, really cool. That was fun. And then Vicious and Delicious with Scott Norton. I absolutely loved that as well. That was another perfect pairing. So he was just awesome. Whether in a tag team, whether on his own with the NWO, I just absolutely loved it. And we go into great detail about the NWO, about WCW, why it hit and then why it missed, uh, what happened with the NWO adding, adding too many guys. I mean, I could just go on and on and on. I just really need you to listen to the interview because you will absolutely love it. And, of course, one of the most important things that we talk about, which was partially one of the most, I'll say it again, captivating parts of the interview, was him talking about his injury, him talking about his recovery, him talking about all the thoughts and things that were going through his head while he had that broken neck. So, you will absolutely 100% love this episode. It is one of our best, and Buff Bagwell is one of our greatest guests of all time. Totally. This was so much damn fun. And the next two hours of your time are going to be spent listening to some great stories from Buff Bagwell about the NWO, about WCW, about the American Males, about Scotty Riggs, about WCW, about the Attitude Era, about WWF and going over. It's just there's so much to cover. Really strap in and enjoy. Really thank you for coming on. And, hey, it's only the first NWO member we've had on, the big-time NWO member. So with 20 years in the books from the formation of the New World Order, why don't you do something special for us and tweet at us? at Wrestling Pal and at Two Man Power Trip. And why don't you let us know what NWO member may be perfect for the Two Man Power Trip of wrestling. And the guy on the other side of the glass here is going to work his magic and see what exactly we can do. But for now, prime time, why don't you do what you do best, and that is hit them with a little bit of Two Man Power Trip of wrestling business and send them on their way to Buff Bagwell. And now for some TMPT business, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, at WrestlingPal and at Two Man Power Trip. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, please subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a review. We would love to hear your feedback. Also, check out the feed for prior great episodes featuring the late great American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, Harley Race, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, Stan the Lariat Henson, Dale the Patriot Wilkes, Matt Morgan, Homicide, and so, so, so many more, so please check that out. Also, you can check us out on Player FM, the I-95 Sports Network, and the Top Rope Press Radio Network on TopRopePress.com. Also, please check out our Pro Wrestling T-Store. It is new, and it is awesome. So check out the TMPT, Two-Man Power Trip of Wrestling page, on ProWrestlingTees.com, and order one of our shirts today. Also, wire over there. Scroll over to the Kevin Thorne page where you can become a member of the Bite Club. And speaking of Kevin Thorne, if you're looking to book Kevin Thorne, a.k.a. Mordecai, a.k.a. Kevin Fertig, please email bookings at tmptofwrestling.com. That is bookings at tmptofwrestling.com. 
And now, without any further ado, the former five-time WCW Tag Team Champion, you may know him as Marcus Alexander, we know him as Buff is the Stuff and the Girls Just Can't Get Enough. He is none other than the Heat Seeker himself, Buff Bagwell. Please enjoy. Daddy! I'm buff, I'm buff. the stuff, and the girl Daddy! just can't get enough. Identifiable names when you think of world championship wrestling. He's got quite possibly one of the best nicknames in the history of the business. Of course, I'm talking about a five-time WCW World Tag Team Champion, a former member of the NWO. He is Marcus Alexander Buff Bagwell. Also, for you GWF fans out there, the handsome stranger, but Buff Bagwell, thank you so much for joining the two-man power trip of wrestling. Hey, man, thanks a lot for having me, and gosh, when you, um, actually, when you were saying that, it, you know, when you say, I'm, I'm, I'm a very, people that really have heard me do any podcasts or interviews or anything in the past or even have met me before, the people that really know Mark Bagwell know that really, truly, I'm, I'm a very, very humble, humble guy, and, you know, internet keeps me alive and he's you know egotistical he's uh all this stuff comes out of it but for the first time in a long time when you just said everything you said on the intro i was listening and it made me feel good to hear what you said because you know it was true and i ain't heard it, i ain't been announced like that in a long time but you know when I, when I heard it back in the way you said it, it was it was really said very very good and, and it's true you know I mean I, I was lucky what I say is the humble part of me uh, is for eleven years there was only two guys that stayed in WCW the entire ride and that was Sting and myself so that's a pretty big deal you know and when you said the most identifiable name it does it yeah that's that's very true you know the wcw man that was i was there for the whole ride so that was a very good intro well i really appreciate that because uh you know you're one of my uh one of my all-time favorites i'm not gonna lie i'll, I'll let the inner markdom uh come out right now but you i know, love it i, I love it that, oh no hey it's uh it's a testament to you but you know, there's so much that we're going to get into, so much we want to cover, but, you know, when you talk about being identifiable with WCW, you know, I, I like to think about how the w, WCW legacy has been portrayed by the WWE, you know, basically since they acquired all the rights to WCW, and this is now coming on 15 years, as hard as that is to believe, since WCW closed, but if you recall the first night of the WWF-WCW simulcast, when Vince McMahon was going through the names of who you want to see, <laughs> who do you it. want to see come over from WCW to the WWE, WWF, and Buff Bagwell is one of those names. So, yeah, identify hey. him, to say the least. And, you know, and thank you for saying that. And you know how many guys have ever really brought that? Well, let's go this route here. I bet you 
not just on an interview. I'm talking about ever on the street, at a grocery store, anywhere in life. I bet you I've only had this conversation we're getting ready to have maybe five times. So think about that. Here's Vince McMahon that says my name on the very first breaking news of this. He mentions five guys' names. I'm one of the five. And if you really remember, I got the second biggest pop. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, if you really listen to it back, I get like a, like, I think like Goldberg maybe gets the biggest. And then keep in mind, I was blown away. I was in even the top five. I can't believe you even mentioned my name. But if you really listen to that back, I get about the second biggest pop. And, and it totally, I was driving home almost crying. And my dad calls me and goes, he said, what's going on? I said, oh, man, just driving home. No, he goes, well, did you watch the show? I said, no. He goes, well, Vince mentioned your name. I said, you what? And then all my star friends like Lex Luger and Sting and Goldberg and those kind of guys, they said back, well, Vince mentioned your name. You're good to go, brother. And I was like, oh, my God, that's great news. You're all right, you know. Obviously, that wasn't the case, but it was awful good feeling at the time to know, hey, man, all right, I'm, you know, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be okay here. I'm going to be okay, but um, I was the first, you know, to jump ship, but the reason why is only because I had to. You know, the reason you didn't see Sting right away, the reason you didn't see Goldberg right away, the reason you didn't see, uh, you know, uh, other guys right away is because, their contracts wasn't up. My contract, ironically, after 11 years of a beautiful, unbelievable, wonderful, lucky, timing, great ride at WCW, Vince McMahon buys my company that I work for, and my contract is up in a month. So I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. So I've got a month... And I've got zero leverage. One company's gone. There's only one company left. Uh, you've got no leverage. Your contract's up in a month. And you, on the Internet, have got a ton of heat. What do you do? So what I did was, is I called Vince and I said, Hey, man, instead of sitting at home, I said, Sir, I said, instead of sitting at home, and let me collect another fifty grand that you guys owe me. And it may have been more like seventy five. It was between fifty and seventy five when you did all the math of what how much timing was left and due to what I was going to get from Vince that he owed me for the month or a month and a half that was left in my contract. Let's just round it off and say seventy five to be a fair, honest bid. And I said, Hey, you know, take the seventy five. Forget it. Just you ain't gotta pay me a dime. I'll come right now with myself and the contract to show you I'm a team player. And it, it was a great move. My agent thought I thought of. I thought it was a great move. My, all my camp, my family and friends camp, they, they thought it was a great move. Two weeks later, I was fired. <laughs> it's unbelievable. It, it's so crazy that, like I said, 15 years, and you know we've heard the stories of what it was like backstage at Nitro, you know, when Shane McMahon showed up. But I think the more interesting story, obviously, since we have you here, is to talk about the infamous Raw against Booker T, the WCW main event. 
where, yes. you know, you can look at it in certain ways. Yeah, WCW champion was Booker T, but I, I still think, and I've always had this conversation with John, Buff Bagwell gets the second entrance. Buff Bagwell gets the pyro. Buff Bagwell is the, is the first time we're ever seeing him on WWF television. And, you know, obviously the rest they say is, is history, but if you take us back to that day, and obviously all the other stuff that's transpired, you know, with the departure from WWE. What was it like that day at Raw and preparing for that match? Is that just like a surreal moment for you looking back? Extremely, extremely surreal. And um, like as you're even announcing it, what was flowing through my body and the thoughts going back on it all was so unbelievably deep. But what... Let me get a couple of things out of the way before I tell you how I felt that day. Number one, I want everybody to know this. That a lot of people, you guys probably know, but a lot of times guys either don't know or didn't know or didn't put it together at the time. But as Booker T and Buff Bagwell being at Raw, when you get told you're going to be the main event on Raw tonight, well, Booker T at the time and myself were not really with a card like WWF and WCW had, that wouldn't really be a main event. To Booker T, to me, to the world, that's really not a main event match, I don't think. Was and is Booker T a main eventer? Absolutely. Is that match a main event match? Very possibly. Was it yet? No. So we, can we, can I cuss on this program or not? You go, yep, you fly. Go right ahead. Hey. We smelled shit as soon as we saw we were. We wasn't like, all right, we're main event. We were like, what the fuck? This ain't good. So, but you can't, but but you can't act like that because your bosses and everybody is acting like they've given you the main event. You should be happy. So of course we're like, all right, you know, thanks. And then every time me and Booker got to the side, we were like, what's what the fuck's going on, bro? Why, why are we main event? What, what is what's going on? Well. All of a sudden, here's the main thing I want to tell y'all that a lot of people don't know. If you're this McMahon and you own the WCW and the WWF, and you're going to put the very first match of the invasion on, would you want to do it in Tacoma, Washington, or wait one week and do it in Atlanta, Georgia? Right, exactly, yep. Instead, they don't do it. And see, we knew next week was Atlanta. We thought something like happened in Tacoma was going to happen in Atlanta. But all of a sudden, it happens in Tacoma, and we smell shit. Because why would he push this? Why not do it in Vince's, I mean, Ted Turner's backyard? Why not wait? What are we doing? Let's don't do this. This is wrong. You know, so a lot of people, if they want to blame, they want to say stuff like, well, you know, it was a bad match, so they fired Buff Bagwell. You don't get fired after 12 years of having great matches and being a five-time world tag team champion over one bad match. You may get punished. You may get cussed. You may get asked, what the hell are you doing? You don't get fired. The mother rumor, they're stuck like glue. Who in the hell gets their mother to call in sick or whatever they said that my mother did when you're trying to fit into the WWF? I mean, come on, man. I wrestled with 20 stitches in my head that Shane Helms gave me and didn't even tell them about it. And then 
I wait a week and call in sick? Why would I call in sick the first week when I was hurt? So I wrestled in Tacoma, Washington. That match, I had 20-something stitches in my head. The night before in Seattle, I had 20-something stitches in my head in a, in a house show match that me Booker had. So why did I complain then? Because I didn't bitch about it. It's a lie. And however Jim Ross, God bless him, he thought of it, and it stuck like glue. But, I mean, even to the point where I remember calling my mom one day and going, look, I, I'm not even going to be mad at you. I mean, did you call it? I didn't know about it or something. I mean, even I broke down, like, just tell me. I mean, there's no way something like this could stick this hard. So long story short, no, my mother didn't call. B, I mean, you know, two, why would I do that? And three, to take you back on that day, everything you just heard kind of explains my day. It wasn't a happy I main event on Raw Day. It was a worrisome, nervous, what's going on day. So it wasn't your typical, hey, man, you finally reached the ladder, and God darn, that's great, brother. You're, you're fucking your main event on Monday Night Raw with fucking. It wasn't that feeling, which I would have gave anything for it to be. And, and it still, believe it or not, it kind of was. Because because surely they're not going to fire Buff Bagwell, are they? But I was wrong. So I'm thinking, you know, I'm selling good thoughts and trying to have good thoughts. and then, But me and Booker are constantly going, what the fuck? Well, all of a sudden, this is something else a lot of people don't know. After the match is over, me and Booker had a, a shitty match. And believe it or not, we get to the back, and Booker, and me and Booker, if you want to go back in time at all, have got a thousand unbelievable barn burner matches between all the tag teams over the years. Spot after spot, me and him have ran over the years with different tag teams and never missed a beat, never skipped a move, never tripped, stumbled, slipped. I mean, nailed everything. Thing. Our chemistry was off the charts, and for some reason that night it was just off. I mean, could it be the thirty thousand booing fans? Could it be that Shane McMahon, right before I go out, goes, "Don't look in the camera," <laughs> and I went, "Don't, don't look in the camera." I said, "That's all I do." I said, "I pose and I do a dance and I wear a top hat and I look in the camera." I said, "That's all I do." He said, you can't, he said, we don't do that up here. We don't look in the camera. He tells me that when my music's on. So if you ever watch that back, I'm not myself at all from jump. And then I get booed. And then and then Booker gets booed. And Stacey Keebler gets booed. And, it, you know, it just it just is a really, really crazy thing. Well, then after the match is over and we have a shitty-ass match, we get to the back. Believe it or not. Booker tried to blame me. I go, whoa, whoa, wait. I said, wait a minute, brother. Hold on a second. Now we we've had a thousand good matches. Let's don't let's don't start pointing fingers. And and I said, you know, you weren't exactly you know helping out either. And so we and all of a sudden Johnny said, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 stop, stop, starters. It's our fault. And we were like, what? And Johnny said, nobody knows. What I'm getting ready to tell you this this part right here. Nobody knows this part except them and us and y'all right now. And that is Pat, give me a last name. That works up there. Pat Patterson does the main events for WWF. 
I did not know this until this moment. He says, hey, kid, I'm sorry. What happened was I do the main events up here. Johnny thought I was going to do y'all's finish and y'all's match to tell you what to do. And I and John and, and Johnny thought I was going to do it, and I thought Johnny was going to do it because he's y'all's bosses before, and nobody talked to y'all. So y'all went out to the best you could do, and gave us kind of a WCW kind of match, and that's not how we do it up here. It's not your fault. Don't worry about it. Let it go. And so we felt better about the whole situation after that because they understood at least. Because nobody did come to us. Nobody told us uh, the finish, really. It was really vague. Because um, there really wasn't a finish. Steve and them just hit the ring and beat us up. And then me getting thrown out of the building, was it wasn't really supposed to go down like that either. It was just kind of vague. And when you get told your main event on Monday Night Raw, you don't ask too many questions. You know, you just kind of, yes, sir, no, sir. You know, so we just kind of, yes, sir, no, sir. And then they took a lot of the blame when we got to the back, you know, they said, hey, you know, we, you know, we, we, we were supposed to go over and didn't go over with you, so we're, you know, we're sorry, but, you know, overall, it was, you know, it was, it was a great day and all that, fortunately, by, you know, by knowing there was something deeper set, there was a, there was another plan and, and, and progress that we didn't know about, or they would have waited till Atlanta, bro. They would have waited. Yeah. So well, there was something. Was that, that one week. That one yeah. week, that was one it. And I'll tell you what. And it's also the existential stuff in the match that a lot of people don't realize are factors when you think about television wrestling. That is, you had an inexperienced ring announcer in Stacey Keebler who was, you know, I wouldn't say she was exactly polished. She's a great performer, wasn't exactly polished as a ring announcer. Then you also have Scott Hudson and Arn Anderson doing the call for the television audience, which Scott Hudson, identifiable with WCW, but AA, not necessarily known for his color commentary skills. But that's besides the point. The Jim Ross thing is what I think everybody really looks back at now, and it's almost as, you know, I say identifiable with WCW, but when we think about your time with WWE, it's this Jim Ross thing. And, of course, we'll just recap for the listeners he went on one of the network shows or the old uh, on-demand shows and uh, pretty much called you out and said that your mother called out of house shows for you and really threw you under the bus. And it just it was it was very unnecessary looking back. And everybody who was on the panel kind of piped in a little. Oh bit yeah, they, they all they all chimed in. If you remember, they all chimed in. And the reason why I want you to make this very important speech you're getting ready to make about Jim Ross is I want you because I heard Jim Ross make his rebuttal about what we're talking about to Steve Austin after our podcast. And he, Steve never really pushed him all the way right there where he could have been said, did you or did you not say Mark's mother? Because he was saying things like, he liked me and I was a good kid and he has a bad job. and some, But if you want to rewind that clip of him on that on the roundtable that day, he drilled me and threw me under the bus. So he, that like me bullshit and, you know, oh, I got a bad job bullshit. You know, there's only three witnesses, unfortunately, for me, and that's God, Jim Ross, and me. And out of those three, God ain't going to speak up right now. Uh, and you're not going to believe Buff back with the heat he had on the Internet, so they believe Jim Ross, and they believe that my mom did that. So he did throw me under the bus. You're exactly right. 
Right, and, you know, we've had Jim Ross on in the past, and he's gone on a little bit of a, you know, repentance about some of his comments about other people, specifically when he, uh, you know, talked about uh, kind of being sorry about how he performed with Jesse Ventura and that he really gave him nothing and made Jesse the body look bad on commentary. But now if you had the ability to speak with Jim Ross one-on-one and you guys actually had the chance to kind of air this finally, you know, and get this out, what, what would you say to him directly to just be like, you know, is it just a simple why, or is it, you know, like, you know, what did I do kind of thing? Um, God, believe it or not, I've thought of this from, from several different angles, and I've never thought about it from that angle, but that's a great one. So that's a great question and a great angle. What I would say to Jim Ross, and I'm literally coming off the cuff right now, I do think it would be a straight up, hey man, just, just please, just, just tell me why. T- tell me, tell me, wh- you know what? Now I take it back. As I said it, I know what I know what I'd say. It's it's what, what, what was the reason? What, what, what happened? Tell me what really happened from Tacoma on. I know and you know there was a bigger plan for me and Booker to be main event and get thrown out of the building in Tacoma. And then you call me and you let me off for Augusta and you tell me to rest my head and we got big plans for Monday in Atlanta for you. And then all of a sudden, a vicious mother rumor comes out. Jim, please just tell me what happened. Please. I was just begging to tell me what happened. And I would never get it, but that's how I would ask. I would literally beg him because that's how much much it really bothers me. If you get fired from McDonald's tomorrow, and it's just you're flipping burgers for $2.99, but you get fired. And you say, of course, the first thing you're going to ask is, well, why am I getting fired? If they don't tell you why, it's really going to bother you. And it's just McDonald's. Can you imagine? How it would feel to get fired from a three hundred thousand dollar a year job and not get told why? I mean, I don't know. People ask me today, to this day, they say why, and brother, I don't know. So that's a great question, and I would say, Jim, please, bro, just please let, let this deem this only demon that's on me out of a beautiful, beautiful run in this business, one that I loved. Please fix this one last thing for me in my mind. Tell me what happened, man. Why, why the mother rumor? Uh, I mean, I've already applauded him on it. Great, great idea. It worked. But why? Why and what? You know, I really want to know, man. Just tell me. Definitely. And then also on that uh, WV Network show, that you know, like Mike Graham chimed in and stuff like that. Did you kind of take that a little personally that some of those guys are chiming in, especially that, guys okay, like Absolutely, I do. I heard that motherfucker committed suicide, and I hope the motherfucker's dead. I'm glad he's fucking dead. He rode my fucking ass the whole time at WCW. Mike fucking midget ass motherfucking Graham rode my fucking ass the entire time at WCW. You suck, Bagwell. And you know why he rode my ass? Because he thought he still could be in the business, and I was the closest thing of why he couldn't be in the business. Here's a 20-year-old kid that was green, but he really felt like if I had a job, 
he still had a run left. So he could relate to the to me every time I fucked up or anything. You know, he'd go back to, you got to learn how to work the arm, kid. And I was like, Graham, this ain't the fucking 80s, man. Nobody gives a shit about working the arm anymore. It's about getting over it, looking at the camera. It's about selling tickets, bro. It ain't about lacing your boots up any fucking more. Uh, that day's gone, bro, but him and Dunn, he rode my ass. Now, me and Bill, since then, always kind of made up, and, and we remain good friends, and I love Bill. But Mike, uh, if he wasn't alive, I'd, I'd be wishing he was dead. But that son of a bitch rode my ass every fucking day. But he's, yeah, but you're right. He shined right the hell in, too. And that damn CD, if you remember, came out. was called The Heat Seekers. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> and me and Luger on the cover. <laughs> what do you think about that? You know, obviously you and Luger, you know, long-time friends, totally buff, another awesome tag team that you were in. But what do you think about that? You guys are always associated with, you know, quote-unquote heat seekers. But then you actually look into it, and, you know, most of the stories are not true or they're made up or they're, you know, they're blown out of proportion. I, I, to be honest with you, bro, it just goes back to really, God dang, the other day, I, if anybody can possibly get a chance to go on a, uh, a damn podcast I was on, that I was on last week, and I'll, I'll have I'll um I'll have it on my uh, I'll Facebook it or something tomorrow. I'll put it on there. But Dale, the guy that did the podcast, I can't remember the damn name of the show. Um, the guy's name's Brian, and I'll tell you his podcast name in a minute. Uh, but uh, um, he had a special guest for me, and it was Dale Wilkes. Dale Wilkes came out, the Patriot, and said to something that literally tears are coming down my face. He said, I just want to say one thing before I go. And I thought he was just getting ready to say goodbye or something. He goes on a two-minute thing saying it better than I could say it about Mark Bagwell, one of the nicest guys in the business, take his shirt off his back for you, ends up getting hated in the heat that he's got, undeserved heat. He said, and it's over one simple thing. Because he's a good-looking kid that can work, and they hated him for it. He said, and that's a sad, sad situation. And I just want everybody, he went on like this for two minutes. Tears were coming down my face. It was unbelievable that somebody actually, a lot of people know what I just said, and fans and things, but no, none of the boys have actually fully said what I've wanted to say for years. But if I say it, I'm going to sound like an asshole. He said it for me, and it was just wonderful to hear one of the boys that's been there and done that actually say that I got fucked. And I, let me tell you, let me say it again on this podcast live, Buff Bagwell did get fucked. He got fucked out of 15 valuable years. 15, brother. At 31, I got told at Phil Serena I was fired. Excuse me. Released. And 15 years later, I've been asked every day, at least once since then. I'm not sure what that math is. I haven't figured it out, but I probably will tomorrow. But at least one time a day, every day, for 15 years, I've been asked, why are you not on the WWF and the WWE? Why? And I don't have an answer for them. I don't know why. 
So I did get fucked, guys, and everybody knows it. Why is Buff Bagwell not on TV right now? Why was Buff Bagwell taken away and not given another chance for a bad match? For a mother calling him? What? Let's say those were true. Do you do you run a career for a thirty one year old kid that broke his neck literally for the business? Come on, man. I mean, that's crazy. I was never given a second chance. Never. And it was just a damnedest thing, man. Damnedest thing. But I got fucked, bro. And the word is not heat. The word is jealousy. And that's okay. That's cool. Let's go with that for a minute. If we're worth putting on the cover of a CD box that says Heat Seekers, put us on fucking TV and call me and Luke with the tag team named the Heat Seekers and let us be the Heat Seekers. That's money. But they couldn't even take money and make it money. They still kept me home when I had more heat real, legitimate heat. Not fucking a cheerleader in a casket like Triple H did. I'm talking about real fucking heat. I had heat where people really hated me. People still do hate me in this business. I had real heat that you could make money with. And they let me sit at home and just my whole life up, bro. And they know it. Crazy stuff, but Dell, uh, yes, you definitely put it pretty pretty perfectly if I can say so he's a you know great friend of the show and we, we've had him on a few times we uh you know, helped him make that great documentary and, and one of the best parts on it was you telling some stories about when you guys were the stars and stripes obviously multi-time tag team champion and then it kind of comes full circle with Booker T again you know a lot, a lot of good matches with the Harlem Heat man we had some of the best matches of those guys and we talked about that a good bit on this other podcast that we had just last week and and you know you know what like I said, a lot of things that buff through jealousy or heat or whatever you want to call it, you know, um I said it on the podcast last week, I'll say it again here with you guys is you know, when Marcus Bagwell told it like it was, like he does right now, everybody thought it was the from the boys to the fans, they thought it was the greatest thing in the world. And then all of a sudden, when Buff Bagwell started saying it, Buff Bagwell didn't change the way he said nothing. He didn't change the way he talked or anything. But now that Buff was saying it, now it starts to be taken a little differently. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Wasn't a good old little country boy that wasn't, it was in the middle of a card, Marcus Bagwell saying he's funny as hell. We like that little country boy. Now that Buff was saying the same things he was saying before, being straight up, it got taken out of different context, and I got judged differently. So instead of shutting my mouth and being not me, I remained the same person, but I started getting heat for things I said that was funny when I was Marcus Bagwell. And all of a sudden, when you're Buff Bagwell, it wasn't funny no more. So... One of the things I was leading to by saying that is hardly ever does anybody really, really recognize that not only was I a five-time world tag team champion, it's really six, and I can go over them with you, and it's with five different partners. 
And if you look at the five different guys I was world champion with, they are not even remotely the same. I went from Tuco Scorpio to Scotty Riggs, Scotty Riggs to Dale Wilkes, Dale Wilkes to Luger, somewhere Steiner in there, somewhere there was a Shane Douglas, I'm pretty sure. I know for sure there was a Shane Douglas. So I had to adapt to their style. They didn't change. Lex Luger didn't change. Dale Wilkes didn't change. Marcus Alexander Bagwell changed to make it a world fucking champion tag team. And that's not taking nothing away from those guys. Those guys are great. But I could see if I could adapt to them, we could be more successful. And so I did. I kissed the ass. I sold force. I give the hot tag to the big man because I was the little man. I give the hot tag to the Patriot, the big man. I give the hot tag to Scott Norton. Scott uh, Norton. I give the hot tag to Scott Steiner because it made sense. I was able to do what made sense and adapt to make those tag teams make it. But nobody, no, as a matter of fact, if wrestling was real, I think that would be in the history books. I don't think nobody has ever been a six-time world tag team champion with five different guys. But nobody brings it up. Nobody cares because of that heat I've got. That heat is crazy, and you got to think also to the point where you were so successful in WCW and so, you know, up in green and, and so part of WCW that Vince, who obviously hated WCW, hated Ted Turner, hated Bischoff, hated everything about it, definitely wanted to see those WCW guys fail. Do you think that's also a part of it? You know, I, I really believe with all my heart that at first, I really thought when I met with Vince, man, it was buff this, buff that, and, you know, just the way, I mean, you know, he flew me in, and me and Vince, no, nobody knows this. And there's no way I could prove it, I don't think. But Vince did the fly me in thing with my wife when I was still at WCW. And, I mean, I could prove it by maybe airline tickets on Delta, showing I was still under contract with WCW and I flew to make to I flew up to Connecticut. I could show that on an off day when WCW wasn't working kind of proving. But it would take forever and impossible to do it and it's not even worth it. But I'm here to tell you, I swear to God on my life, during WCW my contract being at WCW and Vince had not bought us yet. He did the whining and dining that Vince does, and what he does, he, he flies you and his wife up, you and your wife, first class, you land, limousine to his house, and he courts you, and that's how Vince does it. And I was told about this, not ever realizing it ever happened to me, but it did. Me and my second wife flew first class up to Hartford. We land, or where we fly into up there in New York, I can't remember where we fly into, it's been so many years ago, limousine, but I will tell you, the house thing didn't happen. Something happened, and we met at the Holiday Inn in their meeting room, and so Vince comes walking in with Shane, and we have a, my wife's right there, we have a professional meeting, shake hands, I'm completely under contract with WCW, and Vince wanted me to come work for him. And it was just whining and dining and shaking hands and, hey, man, and, you know, talking about the business. And he asked me, he said, Mark, what do you think makes, he said, what do you think makes a really popular wrestler? What do you think makes one? 
And I said, Vince, I'll be honest with you. I said, I think it's really easy. I said, you come up, you come out of the curtain. And I said, if you get yayed or if you get booed, you should have a job. And the more you're yayed, the higher you should get paid. And the more you're booed, the higher you should get paid. And he said, said perfectly. He says, that's exactly how we work up here. We work by what the, how the people respond. I said, we're going to get along real good then because that's how I look at it. It ain't, you know, it's not, you know, who do you know, who do you blow kind of thing. I said, it is facts. Who walks out and gets, who sells tickets? Who really, really is putting asses in the seats? And that's who gets paid. And um, so we're having that kind of talk and everything. And um, I get home, and about a week later, he goes to my he to my contract. And about three days later, he called me back. He said, "Bagwell, he said, man, there's there's no way for you to get out of this fucking contract." He said, "Brother, when when did you sign this?" And I said, "You know, I said, well, you're going to understand when I tell you this." I said, "I signed that contract in the hospital bed with a broken neck." He goes, well, that explains it. I said, brother, I turned to the back of that contract, saw $1.1 million over a two-year deal, and signed it. <laughs> I said, I just wanted to get paid and make sure I had a job. I, I didn't even know I was going to have a job after I broke my neck. So I had all the stipulations in my contract. None of them were removed, and, you know, I had all the, you know, where they could fire me every three months and all that. I didn't care about any of that because I knew Buff Bagwell could survive that if he just had another chance. So I didn't care what the contract said, as long as I got paid. But when it comes to another company courting you, it does matter what the contract says. So Vince says, Bagwell, there's no way to get you out of this thing, brother. It's nice meeting you, and I'm sure we'll meet again one day. And I was like, great, man. You know, you're right. We will. So in between that, all of a sudden, we rolled up to Panama City probably, I don't know exactly, but I'd say it was five or six months later, and Vince McMahon was at the WCW's building in Panama City, and we were like, this is not good. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, uh, definitely not. And the end of WCW obviously kind of led to really a decline in ratings and wrestling in general because obviously they, they blew it with the invasion. Obviously, you, you know, the whole situation of you, they blew it there. So they really had never designed any design to push WCW. But WCW, especially, you know, in, in the Nitro days, you know, when Bischoff was hot and NWO was hot, I think, you know, arguably, and, and some people could argue the other way, but I think WCW at its best was the best wrestling promotion. Are you kind of in that same boat thinking that? I, I totally believe that. I really do believe WCW, without a shadow of a doubt, for that 80-something consecutive weeks, whatever it was, 50-something, 80-something, whatever it was, it was some kind of consecutive weeks that WCW beat WWF. And I really believe with all of my heart that we had a much better product. And I believe we had one even longer, but it just took the fans a while. If you remember, Rick Rude went on their show, went on Nitro one night, an hour before they came on, and told what was going to be on Raw. And and dunned him in on, let me tell you what's going to happen in an hour, and he kind of dogs him out, where well, everybody started tuning into our program, and then when they did, they saw, hell, man, this is 
this is actually really good. And then you had the Monday Night Wars happen, and I just really believe that we, you know, had better matches. I think we had better storylines. I really believe we wrestled more than, than promos and stuff. I do believe there was definitely a time where WCW was definitely the entity and the best one. Definitely. I mean, NWO was the hottest thing in wrestling, and then you mix that in with the, you know, the Batman-esque to their Joker when you think about things and everything that they were doing was just perfect on point. I mean, even Piper's role was great. Savage had a cool role. And then you joined the NWO as Buff Bagel. Obviously, you turn on your partner, Scotty Riggs. What was it like to kind of turn the corner in your career, become that full-fledged heel, and become Buff Bagwell? Oh, man, it was it was the absolute best. It was, you know, it was really like saying, you know, hey, man, you, you finally made it. I, I mean, just so you know, when you do, when those kind of things happen to you, of course, you don't forget where it was at. It was in Salisbury, Maryland. Uh, and believe it or not, me and Eric were not that tight. Uh, matter of fact, Eric didn't like me at all. And, uh, I mean, I worked for him, and he was my boss, but I could just tell by talking to him and stuff, he didn't like me. And so Kevin Nash comes to me, and, and Kevin goes, me and Kevin go way back, you know, from days in Atlanta and, you know, clubbing. when I mean, he was a bouncer at the Cheetah, you know, back to those days. And uh, so we go way back, and he's like, you know, we, we want to bring in the NWO. And I was like, oh, my God, please, Kevin, that'd be great. And I, he said, he goes, you know, Bischoff's not big on you. He said, but I've told him, man, this kid's great. You know, he's got a great charisma. He'll fit right into this thing. Keep in mind, the word Buff Bagel wasn't even thought of yet at this stage. So, you know, this is just Marcus Alexander Bagel still. And I said, you know, I, he goes, I said, so they handed me the ball that night to come to the NWO. And, and then on that flight home is when we started trying to think of a name. And we start trying to name a name and think of a name, and all of a sudden, Nick Patrick, uh, the referee, Nick Patrick, one of the best referees in the world, from like the back corner of first class in the dark little area, goes, what about Buff? And everybody just stops. And not another name was even assumed. Everybody went, that's it. Buff Bagwell, that's perfect. That's it. So I got straight home and airbrushed everything, you know, Buff Bagwell. And then then the Vicious and Delicious run came, and then I airbrushed everything, you know, Delicious on it, you know. So it was just, uh, we had a lot of good tag teams, a lot of fun, man. It was, it was something that, you know, I would definitely do a thousand times over again. It was worth... It was worth everything to the one match and getting fired at WWF to the entire run, to the broken necks, to the shoulder replacements. There's, I mean, absolutely every bit of it, I'd do it over again. And, I mean, it was just something that is unexplainable uh, when, you're, when you're in it to be that kind of rock star status and have that kind of ride and to take it in the way I took it in, which was very, very humbling and very thankful, and accept it the way I accepted it as Mark Bagwell. And most people that know me or, or have met me know that I did take it like I was Mark. I was always Mark. That, now, when that red light came on, brother, <clears throat> I was Buff Bagwell. But then I came back to Mark always. I knew the difference between Mark and Buff. And a lot of guys get mixed up right there. 
and I never did. I was always very thankful, shake hands, always very nice to everybody. I've never turned down an autograph in my life. I'm always hands-on, very thankful, very appreciative, and that's the true mark. And uh, so, um, you know, just like this interview here, you know, <clears throat> you know, I'm not getting paid to do this, you know. Uh, this is something I, I did because you called, you guys called and asked. And out of, out of respect to, to being nice and to be able to talk a little bit about me and let people still know, um, you know, I did it for you guys and, you know, and love doing it. So thank you guys again for having me on, you know. Oh, yeah, no problem. And we really, really appreciate you coming on. It's <laughs> unbelievable of you, and it's unbelievable of us to get a chance to interview, you know, a guy who's faster, a guy that I was a huge, huge fan of it, and WCW. And, and I can't help but think of, of, of you, you know, the awesome pose, the awesome, you know, the awesome little dance, you know, buff is the stuff. But you were so perfect for the NWO, and it was so cool. But what was it like during the mayhem of the NWO? Because the crowds were nuts. They're throwing stuff in the ring. They're, they're, you know, they're running the ring. They're trying to get in the ring. What was that like, the absolute craziness of the NWO? I think the crazy, the most craziest of the NWO to happen, how, how it really all came down was, as, the, as you as the fan were sitting at home, how it came down was... We were still at we were still at Universal Studios, and we were doing our tapings at Universal when the NWO was first thought about. So we were going out in front of here's here we go to begging people to come into a building so we can tape an hour long segment to going down to Universal Studios and going live to Universal had to tell us to get out because you know. Fans were starting to throw things in the ring, and it wasn't a. It was getting away from a family show because people get hurt and stuff. So what happened to us and for us was the same thing that happened to y'all. Is it became real again? It was real. We we there was there was stuff getting there was shit getting thrown in the ring. Batteries were hitting us in the head. You know quarters. I mean, you had to put your, if you notice, you really go back to the beginning, notice that we all had our sunglasses on, and that wasn't to look fucking cool. That was to protect our eyes, because you didn't know what was getting thrown at us. That is, I mean, that is such a feeling of greatness, though, that you're in that group that can go out and get that kind of reaction, to literally have people throw their fucking Cokes and popcorn in the ring at us, that it just and, and then and then all of a sudden the sign thing happened, where everybody started making the buff signs and you know girls making buff eat my muff and you know buff is the stuff and all, all it was it was just it was it was euphoric, bro. It, it really was euphoric, is the word. It was just off off the charts, man. It was really the coolest thing in the world, dude. It really was. Oh, it was awesome. And then just when the NWO, you know, couldn't possibly get any better, then they do a very controversial, but I still say funny in one aspect, but, you know, on the other aspect, possibly a low blow. But when you guys did the Four Horsemen versus the NWO and did that, par obviously, you know, full overall war game stuff, but feeling so you guys did the parody and you did the awesome, it would be an honor. I mean, you can't forget stuff like that. What was it like being in that moment? Because that's one of the most controversial moments like, in the history of the business. Without a shadow of a doubt, it is, and you and, and you got to realize now. Be me in that controversial moment. Here's 
here's Mar- here's Buff- Marcus Buff Bagwell. I'm in Pensacola, Florida. We're at Monday Night Nitro. And I am way down the totem pole in NWO. Just thankful to be there. Yes, sir. No, sir. Where do I stand, sir? Thank you, sir. Keep your little buff mouth shut, sir. And that's exactly what I did. All of a sudden, I walk in a room and I see Kevin dressed up like Hart Anderson. And I went, what in the hell is going on? So they brought me in the room. They kind of told me what was going on. And I knew. I was like, I said, God, they're going. I said, does Arn know about this? And they said, no. I said, I said, oh, my God. I go, and all of a sudden, they hand me the ponytail, and I'm going to be Kurt Henning. So I, I get the gum and the towel and go get a ball cap to make it look better, you know, with the ponytail coming out and all that. And then, and then of all things, I swear all, the, there's only one witness to this, and he'll tell you. Do you remember what Kevin Nash had in his hands when he came out? The, uh, the beer, the uh, beer cooler? He had a styrofoam cooler that that came out of the back of my car. And guess guess who got in trouble for it? Oh, you me. Got for it? I got in trouble because it came out of my car. I go, wait a minute. I didn't fucking carry it. I just suggested if he was going to come out of my car talking about drinking beer, why not have a styrofoam cooler? And they all loved it, so, of course, the cooler got the most fucking heat. And it was out of Bagwell's car. I'm like, wait a minute, man, come on. You know, and then we go into the spot thing, your spot, my spot, your liver spot. I mean, it was, and then, and then of all things, X-Pac, I love him to death, but let's just be honest, he's not one of the best interviewers in the world. He goes out and just steals the fucking show, acting like Flair, crying everywhere, going woo, woo, and crying, and doing the dance, and all that. It was just, it really was one of the best things in the history of the business ever. And and so iconic, but then, of course, you know, the the backlash was that, you know, Arn really had to retire, and that they said that, you know, you guys took it too far. Did you catch a lot of heat from Flair and and maybe even Bischoff to an extent that you guys took it too far? But I kind of think, in in a way, you you guys really didn't. Well, keep in mind, I was really down on the totem pole there, but if I remember correctly... Uh, I mean, I definitely remember walking in the room, and I was friends with. I was also friends with Flair and them. I'm also NWO, so I'm kind of. They know where I'm at. I'm. 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 Just, I'm still the young, nice Marcus Alexander Bagwell kid that just happens to be in this group of guys that's getting a parody done. That I think. I'm not positive, but I think. You know, there was no heat from Eric because I think Eric was involved in it. I think the heat. You know, Eric had the heat with us on it because he was part of it. He allowed it to happen, so Flair and Arn and those guys looked at Eric like, hey, look, bro, you know, you're no better. You let it happen. You knew it was happening. You know, you were part of this, too. So don't act like, you know, Mr. You're Mr. Fucking Innocent here. You, you know, you have to, you know, you had part to do with this, too. And I'm not positive of that, but I think that's how it went down. And, uh, but... You know, I, I knew when it was happening, you know, as good as I do, if you're me and you're in the NWO, you're going to be the best Kurt Henning you can be, and you're going to jump on the team and do your job. But at the same time, I knew there was repercussions going to come for that for years. And and it did. I mean, a lot of, there was a lot of, 
you know, a lot of real pull-aparts and bars after that, you know, with Arn and, you know, some Scott Halls and some Kevins and, you know, just words get going and alcohol and, you know, how it goes. And, you know, not not a Sid Vicious Arn thing like that happened in Germany, which I was on that tour 10 feet away when it happened. But it wasn't one of those things, but it was close, you know. It got heated in, the, it got heated in several bars and during that time, to show you the difference of, like, what happened there and then Arn having to retire, they even had me arm wrestle Arn one night, and they had me arm wrestling with his bad arm. And I, I pulled him to the side where nobody could hear us, me and Arn one-on-one, and I said, Arn, are you cool with this? And he said, he called me Furlan. For all you listeners out there, look up Furlan Husky. He's an old country singer that had his hair real high. And for some reason, Arn thought I looked like Furlan Husky. He's an old country singer. And so they called me Furlan. That's what they called me. He said, Furlan, he said, Furlan, he goes, don't worry about it, man. He goes, um, you know, you're just doing your job. I said, no, 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 listen to me. I said, ain't like I'm going to go in there and tell them, you know, I'm not going to do this. I know you know that, but I just want you to know that, you know, I didn't write this. I'm not, you know, this this, this hurts me to, to, to do this to you. Are you are you okay? He said, absolutely, man, just do your job. So I had to go out and turn, turn into full buff Bagwell Heat character and beat an old man with a bad arm, you know, and, and, and act cocky and mean in the ring, you know. So I apologized to him before I did it. But then I decided to go out and do it and do my job, you know. So it was brutal, you know. It was real rough. Definitely. I, I can see that. I mean, the, some of the stuff, obviously, WWE was doing at the point, a little controversial and maybe a little bit personal and maybe, you know, hits home a little bit, especially when the guy is injured. But you mentioned before about, you know, obviously the, the brutal neck injury and stuff. But what, I know with the Rick Steiner was kind of a freak accident, but what was kind of going through your head as that whole thing is happening? Were you like, fearful your career might be over at that point? Oh, well, uh, not 100%, 1,000%. Um, I would say 1,000%, I was laying there for, without exaggeration, I know a good five or six minutes that which is an eternity when you're fully paralyzed. I was neck down paralyzed for I know a good five minutes. And um if you really watch that back and you look at it, if you walk up on a dead person that's laying on his stomach, which how many times does that happen? Never, but just in case you ever do, <laughs> and you roll the dead person over, his legs are gonna cross. Or let's just say you walk up on a guy that's asleep and he stays asleep or passed out on his stomach. If you turn him on his back, if you just rub, you grab his shoulder and just roll him over, the human body is automatically going to accidentally cross your legs. Do you understand my analogy? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So I was fully paralyzed, and how you know that is if you watch the match back, when they roll me over, my legs are crossed. Now, the reason they're uncrossed when the camera comes back is because that goofy-ass fucking Vincent tries to start pulling me out of the ring not knowing I'm hurt. Hmm. 
and the order's going, no, no, leave him alone, leave him alone. I'm trying to say, no, don't touch stuff. I can't raise my head up because I'm paralyzed. So the finish of the match that night was supposed to be Bulldog, Scott, Rick Steiner covers, I mean, yeah, Rick Steiner covers me. Uh, Vince, Vincent does something to distract somebody. Scotty slides in, hits Rick with a chair, rolls me on top, NWO wins one, two, three. Well, Bulldog hits, I'm paralyzed, and as soon as Rick rolls me to my, well, I can meet eye to eye with him, I said, I'm paralyzed. And his eyes go big, like, what am I going to do? I'll roll on over, legs cross, if you look at the tape, and he goes to cover me. Scotty comes in, I'm going, you can see my mouth moving a thousand miles an hour. I'm going, Scotty, no, I'm hurt, I'm hurt, don't do that. And my arms aren't moving because I can't move anything. And Scotty hits Rick with a chair. Rick just kind of throws himself off. And um, Scotty, instead of moving me, he's just going to lay my arm across Rick. One, two, three, we win. Instead, when he puts my arm across, my arm just falls right back to my body. So, so So two guys are on their back. And the ref counts one, two, three, and everybody's confused who won, who lost. So if you really watch, my arm goes across Rick and Coverzine, but I'm paralyzed, so my arm just flops back down to my side. And it kind of catches on his quad because his leg's right there. So I'm sitting there with my arm kind of caught up in the air, but the only thing that's caught in the air is because it's on Rick's leg. But I'm totally, 100% paralyzed. So what's going on through my brain is ironically, that same day, I bought the lot for my house I was building, and the lot was $100,000. So all I could think about was, how in the hell am I going to pay for that $100,000 lot? <laughs> I'm paralyzed. So as weird as it sounds, I wasn't depressed, though. It was so realistic. It was so for real that I was paralyzed. That it wasn't like... Let me figure this out. I can fix this problem. This was, listen, motherfucker, you're paralyzed, so let's just move on, and what are we going to do now? That was my mindset. I didn't even cry because it was so surreal. I mean, Scott Norton, if you watch it back, is crying like a baby. Lex Luger's got tears in his eyes. And everybody's really upset visually, and I'm not the least bit upset because... I'm very biblical, and I really believe if I was paralyzed to this day, that that would not have happened for a reason. Would I be very upset about it? <laughs> Maybe a little bit mad about it? Absolutely. But but I, I'm such a believer in God and faith and Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins that I really believe that everything happens for a reason all the way to, I've never asked God why. And up to that moment, I always prided myself and never asking God why. And that night, I wanted to say why so bad. So bad, I wanted to look up. I'm facing the sky already on my back. And I want to go, God, why would you do this to me at the height of everything? Here's the the best wrestling ever was. And Buff Bagwell's coming through the 
the I mean, the best time of his life is Buck Bagwell at the peak, and you get paralyzed in the middle of that kind of run. And I wanted to say why bad, and I swear to God I didn't. I said, God, if this is your plan for me, I remember having this thought vividly. I said, God, if this is your plan, I don't understand. I'm extremely confused, but hey, I'll go with it. I went in that five minutes from wanting to ask why bad to changing my whole thought process around and actually thinking, look, bro, you know, you can do what Christopher Reeves does because he was still alive at that time. You can do what Christopher Reeves does. You can go talk to schools. You can. I'd already gotten that positive from that negative of a feeling of being paralyzed to being that positive of going visiting schools in that five minutes. This seemed like it was an hour. And somewhere in that five minutes and somewhere in that thought process, the trainer, Danny was his name, Danny goes, your left hand's moving. And I said, what? And I, I couldn't like raise my head up. I could turn my head. I looked down, and I saw my fingers were moving, but I didn't know it, but they were moving. And all of a sudden, when I looked at my hand, then it kind of felt like hot water kind of came up my left arm. And then my left leg, same thing, right leg, same thing, and my right arm. And if you watch the video back really close, you can see where one time I feel my chest area because my core was the last to come back. And I couldn't feel my chest when I could feel my, with my fingers. When I poked my chest, I couldn't feel it. And talk about weird. Here I am. I can move. I can feel my legs. I can feel my arms, but I can't feel my chest. What the hell's going on? Well, the whole time I'm getting strapped down too to the table. So I keep asking everybody, "Well, you know, am I paralyzed? Am I paralyzed? Am I paralyzed?" And when you have a neck injury, I didn't know this, but when you have a neck injury, nobody answers you. Nobody, because they don't know. And they don't want to mislead you. So finally, a guy, after the 20th time I asked, I said, I said, somebody fucking talk to me, man. I mean, I said, am I paralyzed or fucking not? And somebody, one of the dudes said, uh, he said, Buff, they're not going to answer you because we, we, we don't know. And we don't want to mislead you. And I said, well, Lam, Sam, at least thank you. Tell me something, you know. So I could move my fingers and my toes. I did not stop moving my fingers and toes until we got to the hospital, and I had to quit moving them for the uh, MRI, and I had to quit moving them for the CAT scan, but as soon as they said I could move, I go right back to move my fingers and toes again. And then finally, after they see everything, they come in the room, and they say, you're not paralyzed, you're, you just bruised your spinal cord. Do you think you can set up? I said, I don't know, so they unstrap me, and they say, set up. So here I've gone from being totally paralyzed to being taped down to a table for two hours to the doctor walking in and saying, set up. To me, setting up and then standing up and going, what in the hell just happened? So what medically happened was at 3-4, my cervical disc shot in, hit my spinal cord, didn't sever it. It bruised it. When it bruised it severely, it it's swollen, and when swelling happens, that causes your limbs to go paralyzed because you can't feel them because the swelling has paralyzed your um, your spinal cord temporarily. 
but you don't know it's temporary. You think you're, you know, you're paralyzed forever. So it was brutal, man. It was a crazy thought, and my whole, I mean, I didn't think I ever really would say this saying, but your life does pass before your eyes. It really does. Um, uh, utterly amazing story, and I remember watching Thunder that night and being, like, in shock, and we, you know, not really sure what happened. It just wasn't sure if thing ever paralyzed. I mean, it was just crazy. But do you think that your recovery was like nothing short of miraculous? Because you actually ended up coming back way quicker than anyone even predicted. Dude, I don't know. Really, it was absolutely amazing. And I, I mean, the only thing I can put that toward is just, you know, two people, the doctor and God. Because, you know, it went, I had a lot of provocations, too, a lot of provocations. For starters, when they went and did the first surgery, I woke up and I couldn't breathe good. And I kept telling the nurse, I can't breathe good, I can't breathe good. And she goes, oh, you're fine, you're just, you're kind of claustrophobic because of the neck brace. They give me, some, you know, some kind of sleep medicine, Xanax or something, I, I go back to sleep. I wake back up, and, you know, my mom's there with me, and my mom is real, a real trooper. She's, we call her the warrior. So the warrior was there, of course, and when I woke up the second time, I said, Mom, listen to me. I said, I can't breathe good. Something's up. And so she calls the nurse back in there, you know, and the nurse is kind of a bitch. And she's like, yeah, he asked her back, well, yeah. I said, I said ma'am, I, I'm really having a hard time breathing. She goes, sir, I told you before, it's just because you're having, you know, your anxiety's up and you got this neck brace on. Well, all of a sudden, I start talking to her, but when I'm talking to her, my, my voice starts going out. And, brother, when that happened, all of a sudden, they were at shift change. So it was, I, remember, I remember that vividly being at shift change because it was 6 a.m. And, brother, when I started, my voice started going out on me, you would have thought that we were getting attacked or something. Fucking lights started coming on. Daughters are coming in with donuts in their hands. My bed's spinning around and around. And I remember this doctor looking at me, him actually spitting the donut out of his mouth. And they had this plastic tube that wasn't very flexible, kind of wasn't flimsy and soft. It was like a hard plastic tube. And they had to, I think it's called Innovate or something like that. But regardless, they had to go up my nostril. And that, that hard plastic tube goes down your throat. What had happened is I had a blood clot in my throat, and it was choking me. And they had to get that pipe up my nostril and cast that blood clot or I was going to die. And the doctor looked at me and he said, Listen, he, I look, he looked me in the eyes and he spit his donut out and he goes, you've got 45 seconds to live. He said, you need to work with me and hang on. And it was the most painful, horrible, horrific 45 seconds I've ever been through in my life. Here you are helping a guy torture yourself by getting this hose up your nose, down your throat, and pass a blood clot. I don't think I've ever told this story in my entire life to anybody except my personal family and friends and stuff. So nobody knows this story I'm telling you guys except now. And as soon as it got past the blood clot, I went, <sighs> I could then I could breathe because I had air then. But until it got past that blood clot, I couldn't breathe. So straight back in for emergency surgery, 
they pull the blood clot out. This time they leave like this little plastic plastic thing hanging out of my my scar that allows the drainage so blood clotting won't happen. So didn't lose any weight, feeling great, crazy surgery that almost died. I go home and I get food poisoning. I I throw up, not knowing I re-hammers it again, I throw up, my wife is on the other toilet at the same time, so nobody can help me, here I am in the bathroom after having my three, four, and six, seven fused, and a blood clot removed, home from the hospital for about four days, after that second surgery, Excuse me. After the second surgery, no weight loss. After the blood, after this one, brother, I lost forty pounds. So I'm on the toilet. Nothing can help me. Nobody can help me. Throw it up. Both ends coming out. Nobody to help me. That night, we're sitting around like you feel when you get food poisoning, like just absolute horseshit. And I go to take a Percocet for my pain medicine, and the pill, the pills having a hard time kind of going down. And I look over at my wife, and she's looking at me with real scary eyes. And she says, that's the same thing that happened to you last time. And I went, oh, fuck. So I'm going to call my mom, and all of a sudden, I came and swallowed my own saliva. I'm having to literally, I can talk like this, but I'm having to spit my saliva up. So I called my mom and dad, and they're real, you know, they're, they're real loving parents. And, and they, I called them up, and I said, hey, guys, what's going on? I didn't want to make them panic, you know. I said, hey, guys, they said, hey, what's going on? I go, I said, listen, uh, no, you know, don't, no big hurry or anything like that. Just take your time, but um, uh, don't panic here, but I'm, I'm, I'm choking again. And, of course, my mom, oh, oh, you know, so here they come. Well, they get there. They're getting ready to take me to the hospital, and now it's gotten so bad that we think we may be better to call an ambulance. Because what if, you know, what if on the way I quit breathing or something, you know? So we call an ambulance, and the ambulance, now this time, you know, I'm buff Bible living in the subdivision. Now, as the ambulance goes pulling out, like in a Rocky movie, I swear to God, there was 20 kids following the ambulance waving at me as my ambulance left the, left the subdivision. And I'm like, what is going on? Are you kidding me? So back in the hospital, I swear to God, when I saw the doctor's faces, they looked just like, are you fucking kidding, man? You're back again, really? That's how they looked on their faces. They were like... Come on, man, really? And that's how I felt, of course. Then I see my doctor's faces like that. And he comes up to me. And I see that same plastic tube again. And I said, brother, please, please, Lord God, tell me you don't got to do it to me again. He goes, Mark, you've got to be awake for it. And I went, oh, my God. I said, I said, brother, give me just, give me just two minutes. He said, all right. I cried so hard because I was so spent, bro, for about two minutes. I cried as hard as a man can cry for two minutes. And they had the IVs hooked up and everything so they could knock me out right when they got it done 
but I had to be awake for the nose thing. So here I go again for 45 seconds of hell, brother. Put the tube up my nose, down my throat, but as soon as I went, they can zap you and knock you out. So I barely remember it, but it was another fucking torturous pipe up the nose and down the throat thing. I woke up from that one, 40 pounds light. Wow. That so, yeah. Absolutely, unbelievably, just te- just listening to that is uh, is nerve-wracking and tense, but, you know, I, I hate to have kind of like a, uh, like a 60 minutes, like Barbara Walters moment here, but what becomes your motivation after that? I mean, you literally just went to hell and back. You, you leave the hospital. You got to get right back into the hospital, I'm sure. Work, you know, it's in your mind, it, but it could be the furthest. It's recovery now, but what's your motivation to just get healthy after that? It was, it was, uh, it was, the motivation was really simple, and it was WCW. I mean, it was, I watched Nitro. I mean, if if anybody even spoke when Nitro was on, you got cussed out. I mean, and I, I prayed for one sign. I prayed for the announcers to say my name. Um, you know, I prayed for something to get brought up to for them to mention my name or anything during the show. And like for the first couple of weeks, they didn't. And I called Bischoff up and I go, I go, Eric. I said, damn man, throw me a bone, bro. I said, I said, I'm, I'm seeing some buff signs out there every once in a while. I mean, hey, nothing else to say, you know, buffs it on. Because Eric was real big on not doing any video of this at home. Can you imagine having what I just told you on video to show the world? That would have been the best reality show in the world. But Eric said it was bad karma. He said, nope, no video cameras. I said, Eric, get a fucking camera and get it up here now. And this was at the very beginning. I said, we're missing out, but this is way before reality TV. I said, you're missing out, dude. Get that fucking camera up here, because I promise you I'm going to make it back. I'm going to look the same. This is going to be a great story. He goes, nope, that's bad karma. So not one video of it, not one anything of it. I thought, here's a miraculous comeback. The buff bag will make it back in 10 months. And makes it back in 10 months. Not only makes it back, I'm shredded. I look incredible in 10 months. I'm fully buff bagwell again. And they beat me my first match back with a bulldog for Rick Steiner. It's uh, it's kind of funny. Whoever, nobody, nobody, nobody comes back from an injury in this business and gets beat their first match back, but I did. <laughs> it's you know, it kind of goes to some of the booking questions at the time, and obviously, even during that, you know, with Rick Steiner and Scott Steiner, that storyline kind of became a little bit of a uh, a shell of what it really was at the beginning because. It was like a, a turn this week, a turn that week. You're with Rick, you're not with Rick, you're with Scott, you turn on Rick. It's, it it kind of went back and forth. Did that get frustrating for you? Because it really was such a solid story with Scott turning on Rick and then you really being the one in between. You could have gone with Rick. It would have been a you know a decent babyface run, but right back to the NWO. You know what? It would, it, you're exactly right. I was caught in the middle with that, and it could have gone either way. And um, but what they did was is actually 
me and you know me and Scotty, what Eric was doing, he didn't even realize it. Eric really was the first person I think to start the reality TV thing. Well, Eric, and you said it a little bit earlier. You said, yeah, you know, Eric, you know, you just Eric. You said you guys always would do things kind of, you know, you know, kind of close to home and da da da. Well, that's what Eric would do. Eric would find a situation that was going on in the locker room. And he'd put it on TV, you know. Uh, so he doing he was doing reality TV before he even knew reality TV was really out there, you know. And like for example, me and Scotty, when me and Scotty kind of fell apart at the end there, you know, uh, what happened when that was, you know, me and Scotty, I man, I managed Scotty when I first came back, and you know, got Scotty back on his feet and everything. I mean, I mean, excuse me. Scotty helped me get back on my feet as Buff Bagwell when I came out and bounced around Scotty like his manager. And we had a really good thing, Big Papa Pub and Buff Daddy. It was great. And how it, how our deal worked was every Nitro, you know, Scotty would go out and do his interview and then hand me the microphone. I'd cut a little interview to keep myself over. And then Scotty would have his match. And I kept Scotty the star, and he saw when I would come out, I always bounce around him and make it all about Scotty, you know, because he was a star, and I was his manager. And um, one night, he cut the interview and don't hand me the microphone. And I was like, hmm, that's okay. I'll... So we got in the back, I was like, hey, man, what, what's, what was up with the microphone, bro? Keep in mind, I can't wrestle. That microphone is a big deal to me. That little 30-second clip of me saying I'm buff and I'm the stuff is a big deal on Monday Night Nights for live television. So I said, Scotty, what's up, you know? He said, oh, man, I'm so sorry. I just, I just forgot, man. I just forgot. I was like, oh, okay, okay, man. So the next week comes, and that motherfucker does the same thing. I got in the back. I said, Scotty, what, what's, bro? What is going on? So he finally got clean, at least what went what was wrong. He said, man, he goes, I was at the gym the other day, and, you know, Mark Wallace, and Mark Wallace was a good friend of everybody. He's, he's passed away now, but he's a good friend of all of our. He was like Mr. Georgia and trained a lot of guys. He used to help me with my diet and stuff. And, and I go, whoa, 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 whoa. But he was also, Mark Wallace was also, you know, a gym rat and, you know, you know, drama and, you know, all that stuff. And I said, wait a minute, whoa, whoa, whoa. Just starting that story off, Mark Wallace, I said, Scotty. If you're going to believe something you heard at a fucking gym that I've said, if that's where you're going, if we're no better friends than that, let's just end this fucking thing right now. I said, you know, I don't need you. I said, and you don't need me. I said, so, you know, take the microphone and shove it up your fucking ass. I don't, I, that's cool. I, I'm, I'm with you. And I didn't say I didn't say it like that. <laughs> I, didn't want, I didn't want to be beat up by Scotty, but I really did say, "Hey, brother, you know, right, we're, we're friends. If you're going to believe that kind of stuff, this ain't going to work. Let's just end this right now." And he goes, and he actually called me back into it. He said, "No, no, no, I, I, no. I want to stay together. You're right. I'm sorry." The third week, the motherfucker does it again, and I couldn't. Believe, I went straight to Eric. And I said, I don't need Scotty. He don't need me. Break us up. The very next pay-per-view was me and Scotty. Rick turned on me. Put the Scotty brothers back together. But if you remember, 
me and Scotty had that incredible interview in the ring. That if you now know this part of the story and watch it back, it was a 100% shoot interview we had. When he got beat by Booker T. And the interview, if you look on YouTube, it says, Steiner kicks out buffs from NWO or something like that. And it's me and Scotty in the ring, and both of us are just jacked. I mean, we both look incredible and big and jack and lean, and and then we you know we're, we go out together like partners. And then when he gets out there, he dogs me for costing him because I hit him with a chair to cost him the match for with Booker T for the U.S. title. And he was like, somebody don't, you know, he goes. Somebody don't belong anymore. You know, he did his little Scott Steiner thing. And keep in mind, we had a job to do. And the job was to end it with him turning on me. The rest of it was like a wrestling match. You know, you guys set it up. You guys do what you want to do. This is live TV. But this is the finish we want. All you got to do is that finish for your job. What happens up to there is up to you guys. So that was a complete shoot that almost got out of hand in the ring. But all we had to do to keep our jobs was shake hands and him turn on me, and that's what we did. So that interview that we had right there was 100% shoot. I was like, you may want to scan the crowd and look at the Buff Daddy signs. You know, all that shit was. And I said, you know what? Maybe, you know, since Buff Daddy's got back into shape, maybe Scotty's just a little bit jealous. You know, so all that, he was like, he had a great comeback, though. He said, no matter how great you look, you'll always be second best. So, I mean, it was a great, great interview. But when you watch it back and now you know it's a shoot, it was a really great interview. So that leads up to the pay-per-view. And literally, me and Sky don't speak for three weeks. The night of the pay-per-view, I, you know, I don't know what to do. So I, I walk up to Scotty, and I ain't going to kiss his ass. So I walk up to Scotty, and I said, do I got to defend myself? And he said, no. But he paused, he paused and thought about it, but he went, no. I said, okay. So we did not talk about the match. We didn't go over it. We knew the finish. We went out, and the finish was I go from the blockbuster. Uh, Rick gets me with a chair. You know, does a side of recliner. That's it. And the side of voice turned on me. Side of the back together. And that was the finish, and we did it. But uh, I literally had to ask him. I need to defend myself. <laughs> So the Scotty, he, he could have went out and beat you up on live TV, and there wasn't a whole lot you could do about it. <laughs> oh, it's so great. And, again, it, it kind of mirrors the fact, like we said, you know, so many great associations that you've had. And, it really, one becomes the other. You guys become such a great duo. But we're just going to dial it back a little bit and step away from the intensity of this story because we had on former partner of yours, Scotty Riggs. And we yes. talked about the American Males at length. And, of course... American Males is uh, quite synonymous with their theme song and quite synonymous with something that Scotty really pointed out to us, and that is perhaps the American Males should have come along in the 1980s rather than the 1990s because it almost looked like WCW was trying to replicate the fabulous ones. Yeah, I, I, I do agree with that. That is something that um, he, me and him never spoke of, but I think that... It's a fine line because where 
let me give you my spin on it. My spin on it is I think it was perfectly timed, and here's why. I, I couldn't get WCW to realize it was a time for a baby face to have a goatee and have earrings. You didn't have baby faces with beards and goatees and earrings and chokers. That's heat. That's a bad guy. So I convinced them that this was the 90s, and it was different. Keep in mind, this sounds a little bit like the NWO, but let's just put that over to the side for a minute. I had no idea about the NWO, but I knew about life, and I knew that goatees were cool, and I knew the earrings were cool, and I knew they wasn't heat. They could be a baby face thing. But so finally, they, I shaved my goatee because they wanted us to be shaved, and then they bought into my idea and believed me. So they, I had to grow my goatee back and all that, and so they allowed us to be kind of that cutting edge baby face with the earrings and the chokers and the, you know, look at us, but we're baby faces, you know, and that cheesy-ass horrible song, which, if you ever hear that song without the words, it's actually pretty fucking good, but with the words, it's horrendous, so, um, but, uh, so, you know, really, I really believe what the American males represented was what was coming, which was goatees and long hair was going to be cool and not bad guys anymore. And that's what happened. NWO wore black, had, had goatees, had tattoos. We were the bad guys. We were supposed to be the bad guys. And what happened? We became over. We became popular. We became the baby faces, which made all the baby faces heels. Which made because there's got to be a yay, and there's got to be a boom for it to work. And if they're going to be yaying the NWO guy, then they're going to be booing your DDP, Lex Luger's, and your Stings. And they hated it. It pissed them off. And I was like, look, what do you want us to do? You know, we didn't know this was going to happen. So it really threw a major curveball at everybody. Here, all of a sudden, the biggest heel thing in the world turns babyface, and it makes all the babyfaces kind of start scrambling, and then steam into the crow, and everybody switched gears, you know? So it really, to me, the American Male thing was just another step to showing why the NWO ended up being babyfaces, which was a bunch of cool, badass-looking guys with some goatees that would normally be heels in the business were all of a sudden baby faces and cool, and beating people up was cool and fun, and people liked it. Instead of being, you know, boo, you know, it was more of a, yay, we like you guys, you guys are cool, y'all are badasses, you know? So, I, I, I kind of see his point, but at the same time, I think we kind of broke ground of being one of the first baby face tag teams that wore the beards and goatees and long hair and made it worse, you know? Right, and of course, you look back at those vignettes and the promos, and it screams 90s when you look back. I mean, we're not going to lie. We all we were all around in the 90s. It screams 90s, <laughs> like, you know, with with the denim and the vests and the chains and all. It's It screams hmm. 90s. But one other thing that Scotty said, which is undoubtedly true, is the chemistry that you guys had. And that really poured off the charts and through the television screen and grabbed the viewer because you guys – 
did have a very good run as a tag team. And, of course, you know, very memorable feuds, very memorable matches. But, you know, the two of you together as babyfaces, you see Hulk Hogan come in at the time who was very identifiable with that 80s babyface style. Do you think that you guys, Hogan as a babyface, American Males with that persona as a babyface, do you think the changing of the guard was what WCW really needed to kind of see and the chemistry you guys had was clearly there, but maybe just a couple tweaks needed to be made. I absolutely, totally agree with that, hundred percent. And and, and um, um, especially with Hogan coming in, you know, with the red, white, and blue, and everything, and you know, the American, you know, is American. Obviously, everything was American. Eat your vitamins and be a, you know, the baby face thing. And and but yes, our chemistry was really, really, really off the charts. I'm not sure if he told you guys this, but Scotty, he thought of my finishing move. Um, me and Scotty practiced the blockbuster on a, on, in a hotel room on the bed. I hit him with a blockbuster. I wanted to do Rick Rude's neck breaker. But I was trying to figure out some way to do it and make it, you know, different. So we came up with coming off the ropes and flipping over the guy and, to, and, and doing it like that. So he actually thought of the blockbuster with me, and the first time I hit it was on him, sold out in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Yes, he he did actually mention that that awesome story, and he you know yeah. saying that you guys came up with it, very very cool. And and I remember that match and NWO sold out very yeah. well. Very, it was very different. I mean, you know, obviously the way they covered it was completely different, and and he kind of really thought that the NWO was completely separate from WCW. Was that kind of the way that Bischoff wanted to do it, like create WCW and then do the separate brand as the NWO? Well, yes, it is. And let me tell you how real that really was, even. It was so real that I have got action figures and top hats and things and pictures that I know... I had like NWO on or WCW on, and they had to take NWO off. Um, like I remember my waistband where your belt buckle goes. I used to have like NWO right there, and on some of my action figures that had to be taken off because of the copyright of WCW. So it got down even with action figures in our merchandise of. I could see like a pair of tights I had where I know I had NWO on them. It would be blacked out when NWO wasn't seen on the toy. So it had to be real enough even that in the marketing world and toy world of the business side of it, it was so real that even that mattered. So it had to be even like on paper somewhat real because I know for a fact that, like I said, action figures had WCW or NWO on them and they couldn't have both. And so I even think Eric had a hard time with it from the creative side of having to keep it really, really separate because it, I think it really was. And not only do we play a storyline like that, it literally had to be like that for action figures and stuff. So it was made it even more real for us and more exciting for us. And and really, that's that's what made it great was it was real again, bro. Wrestling was real again. And that's why it was popular again, because it was real. There was really two companies 
that were really ran by two billionaires that really did hate each other, and they really were running against each other every Monday night, and that draws money, and it worked. Without a shadow of a doubt, it's so, so true. And to get those days back, you know, the the, uh, the Monday Night Wars again would be amazing, but, you know, those days are long gone. But do you think that with the NWO the way it was, and, you know, kind of the way they turned it. Do you think they kept it going a little too long? You know how they broke it up into all the different factions. Do you think that they should have had a better end game for the NWO, or do you think that Bischoff really just wanted to keep the, the you know, his money, the, basically his big money maker? He wanted to never lose that. I really think we really fumbled. Um, and I'm really not sure which direction we fumbled because, I mean, I know, if, I, know I do know a few areas that I can really speak strongly about where we fumbled, and there's a few I don't know, but one of them I know we fumbled on was we had too many guys. And that was an obvious that everybody saw. We definitely watered it down. There was definitely too many NWO members. So when that happened, they thought of the Red and Black, the Wolfpack. And then when they thought of that, we were going to debut that in Atlanta. Well, all of a sudden, I'm starting catching rumors that I'm not in the Elite 5 or 6. They're not picking me. Sting had been off forever. He had been you know, taking care of some personal problems and going through a divorce and some other things. So he shows up in Atlanta for Monday Night Nitro, and I'm now I've caught real strong wind that I'm not in the Wolfpack. So I go to Sting, pull Sting to the side, and I said, brother, we've been friends for 10 years, great friends. I said, I've never asked you to do one thing for me in this business, never. I said, I'm glad I haven't because I need a, I need a big one. He said, what's that? I said, they're not involving me in the Wolfpack. And he instantly looked up at me, and that's all I had to say. I saw him at about 20 minutes later, and he handed me a black and white shirt, I mean, a black and red shirt. He says, you're in now. Hmm. So, yeah, so I was not originally picked, which, you know, of course, now... Then, all of a sudden, we start wearing the red and black, and we go to a photo shoot, and Hogan would have a black and white one on. So we were like, which fucking shirts are we supposed to wear? And so if we're confused on who's who, you know the fans are confused. So we definitely fumbled the ball on the black, red, wolf pack, black, white, who's who. And then we kind of started feuding the black and white and the red and black feuded a little bit. And it was just, like I said, I was confused and I was in it. So if I'm confused and I'm in the NWO, the fucking fans are really lost. So we definitely fumbled. And I don't know whose fault it is. And I'm not sure what happened. But we definitely fumbled majorly by, I'm not saying switching to the Wolfpack. I think that was a smart idea. But they need to switch to the Wolfpack and do completely away with NWO black and white or their storylines needed to be better or whatever where everybody was on the same page because it was very confusing. 
absolutely. And it's funny that so many reincarnations of, of the NWO, like even the WWE, you know, tries to do it. So it's one of those things where it's like instant money. So you almost don't want to kill it off, but you want to bring it back. So I mean, the Wolfpack, you know, could have been a good idea. They they kind of fumbled it with having the black and white still going on. But interesting is that if you if you're on the WWE network, all all the WCW stuff, all the NWO stuff, and they even made a series, you know, called the Monday Night Wars, and it was a big part of the network and a huge, huge, highly acclaimed series that they did, and it was really good stuff. But interesting enough, we were talking to one of your ex-tag partners, Shane Douglas, you know, former uh, tag team champion, and we were talking about network royalties and, and how the fact that they weren't getting paid even though they were being seen on the network. What is your thoughts on the royalty issues with the WWE? Oh my God! Just ironically, um, just sent over a clip of I'm on the 2015 video game. How in the hell can? Well, let's first go with why. Why in the hell would you put Buff Bagwell on your video game and not hire him? I mean, if you care enough about me or like me enough to put me on your video game, why in the hell not give me a job? Not only that, but you're going to put it on and not give me no money for it? Now, the problem is I probably signed my life over when I signed it to Vince, and I'm guessing I probably did. But I don't know that, and I'm having a lawyer check on it as we speak. But I'm on the 2015, for sure, some video game, and I think the 2016-something. But for sure, I'm on the 2015-some video game, and somebody Facebooked me over the clip, and I actually give a guy the Canadian Destroyer. Hmm. Yeah, and I saw a clip of it, and it's an action figure. I mean, I mean, like a little video game. And I come walking out, and it's the pyro, and I come walking out, red tights and the red hat on, and I come walking out, getting the ring, and I think I'm wrestling, I think it's Booker T in the ring with me. So I think it's that match, or, or that match supposedly, or whatever, but it, uh, and I can't remember what the name of the video game is, but my lawyer has all the info, and I at least want to check, you know, and make sure, damn, do, I mean, can they do that? I mean, how can I be on a video game and not be getting paid for it this many years later? Absolutely. So, yeah. So I, I think a lot of guys. I think a lot of guys got screwed on that, of course, and and I and I'm one of them. And you know, like I said, we were in a position where we had no leverage, and you know, Vince could have been a really nice guy and said, "Hey, you know, if I use you, I'll pay you, but if I don't, I won't." But I think we basically just signed our lives away, and you know, he owns all the rights. Is what I think I'm gonna probably hear from my lawyer. But I don't know, and I'm at least going to check it out, you know. Absolutely. And you think about, you know, your whole career. I mean, global that they have on there now, and then your whole WCW run they have on the network, which anybody can readily get. But then, on the other hand, you're not getting those royalty checks, and obviously not yeah. from, from the from the video game. Isn't that a little bit strange? Like, shouldn't, like, Shane Douglas kind of says the same thing. He's like, we should be getting a little bit. You know, we may have signed a deal here or there, but we should be getting a little bit because you're using all of our footage. And that's exactly why I sent this into my lawyer for what you just said. I mean, hey, I'm not asking to, you know, to pay my mortgage. But, I mean, 
I mean, come on, bro. I mean, you're making millions of dollars. I remember back when I did get some royalty checks. I remember seeing, like, I got, like, $180, and Ben's got, like, $2 million. <laughs> You know, it's like, I mean, I, I mean, I guess you got to spread it out a little bit. I understand, but my God, 170 to $2 million for the black and white stuff you sold, and I get 180 you get $2 million. I mean, I, I'm all about... You know, let's spread the wealth a little bit, but let's can we spread it just a little bit more? <laughs> you know, so yeah, I think it's very unfair, definitely. Yeah, it's definitely not fair at all. And it's kind no, of, but it is. Some of the things that you know you you go on the network and you see, and, and I was looking at the other day, which is kind of cool. How you know you can kind of go back and look at it, but I was looking at. Um, I think it was you. It was you and uh, Tupole, and you guys were wrestling the Nasty Boys, and I was just thinking, um, you know, just kind of laughing, thinking, like, man, I wonder what it's like working with these guys. I know it's kind of random, but I, now that we're talking about the network, I was kind of just thinking of something I was watching. But what was it like working with, like, guys like the Nasty Boys and, and being in WCW at that point when it was before, you know, WCW made a big leap and, and really attacked them? Well, it, it was still really great because you got to realize, even though we hadn't made the big jump yet, we still were a major company, and we, you know, our pay-per-views were still big, and and uh, and me and you know me and Scorpio had a great thing. I mean, we were tag team of the year, and you know, world tag team champions, and and the Nasty Boys had been there, done that. They were WWF. They were. You know, they were the World Wrestling Federation World Champions before. So, you know, it was a big deal. We had great matches with those guys. Matter of fact, if you ever get a chance to go back to 1993, Halloween Havoc, and watch me and Booker, me and Scorpio versus Harlan versus uh, Nasty Boys with Missy Hyatt and Teddy Long, it's definitely one of the best matches I've ever been in tag-wise where everybody does a perfect job, great match. We come out as the champs and lose the belts, I think. I'm pretty sure. And but, yeah, we come out as champs there, and uh, we lose the belts back that night. But uh, just a great, great match, and uh, really turned out great, man. It was, uh, it was Halloween Happy 93. If you get a chance to see that, watch it. It's a damn good match, man. You are 100% correct on that. Great show all around. Kind of underrated and kind of forgotten about the whole show. I mean, even the main event, uh, Vader and Cactus Jack, they definitely get on the house. But the whole show was great, and especially your tag match. But you've had so many great tag teams, and you've been in so many great tag team matches. Can you actually pick a favorite tag partner, or is that almost impossible for you because you had so many good ones? That was, that was really tough because, like I told you earlier, I really did adapt from the bottom pit of my heart, like out of love for, A, my, my partner and my friendship with my partners, I really did dig in to their life, their world, to become part of them, to be, to make us more successful. And I was very good at improvising and doing that. So that's what I did. And it's really hard when you do that to pick a best one. I mean, me and Luger were, tremendously great friends for the longest probably. But God, as soon as I say that, me and Riggs pop up to my head and me and Riggs had some of the best times in the world. And then, you know, me and Scorpio really, we didn't hang out. We were good, we were friends, but we didn't like hang out on the outside. Me and Scotty never left each other's sides. Me and Lex never left each other's sides. 
you know, me and me and Steiner had a great thing, but and me and him kind of were on and off by leaving each other's side, some and some not. But you know, the Luger, I can now down to two, and it'd be Luger and, and probably Riggs, but that'd be about really it. I enjoyed everything uh, so much, dude. You guys have been great, and um, I do want to say, please. Stay in touch with me, and I, we can do it again sometime for sure. I also want to say to all my, all, to all my fans out there, please, um, I am at Marcus Buff Bagwell on everything except Twitter. Twitter is Mark Buff Bagwell. Everything else is Marcus Buff Bagwell, and my website is in construction right now. It'll be up. What happened was is we had some problems keeping getting my passwords from my past manager, and um, we had to redo my whole domain name. So everybody was a little bit confused on the real buff or not. So it's completely just Marcus Buff Bagwell, and my website will be MarcusBuffBagwell.com. So please stay in touch with me, and we can definitely do this again. I love this kind of stuff. I do it a lot. So just stay in touch with me. You got my number. We'll definitely do it again. And uh, just remember, man, I am buff, and I'm still the stuff. Yes. All right. Have a great night, man.